Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. Multi-award winning pianist Dr. Amit Yahab will be playing in theatres throughout South Africa over the next two weeks, including a show at the Linda Auditorium on the 21st of May. Born in Israel, he's based in London, from where he joins me now to tell me about his love of music. Dr. Yahab, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Dr. Yahab, what drew you to music and the piano? So I think it's a question I've been asked a lot of times and I've had a lot of chances to reflect on it. I think there's something that one is possibly even born with, the sort of attraction to the sensation of sound. Uh, and it certainly helped that there was a piano in the house uh, as I was growing up. And I remember being quite little and enjoying this notion that, you know, I'd, I'd press the keys and it would make a sound. And so I think it, it really started from there, but it, it developed into this all enveloping passion uh, that that I'm so lucky to have as my profession today. Dr. have obviously you travel the world, you play internationally, you award-winning. Do you also teach piano? I do. And in fact, it's something that is very important to me. I find that, first of all, I discover things about myself and my own playing as I teach. And I also enjoy sharing this, uh, this passion with, with students. And, you know, I've worked with, with very young children. I've worked with more uh, mature people at various stages in their careers. And it's, it's always incredibly rewarding. I think the reason I ask you is just following on what you were saying about being drawn to the piano. And I always am fascinated by talent versus, you know, people who are maybe not talented, but have a love for it. And whether as a teacher, you can pick up the kind, like instant talent immediately. I, I think it's a combination. So there are people or there are students, let's say, to whom this comes more naturally than others. And perhaps that's what we might call talent. But I'm always very wary of that word because it sort of implies that there's no work to be done beyond it. And I think in a way that uh, that natural ability is sort of the tip of the iceberg and it sits atop of a big mountain of, of work that has to be done to nurture it and, and to make it viable. So it's both a combination of hard work and natural talent and passion possibly as well. Definitely. Look, I think if, if you have the most talented uh, child and he hasn't got a, a teacher or someone to, to work with, then I, I find it hard to see it going very far. And I'm calling you doctor because you have a doctorate in music with specific focus on Chopin. Do you want to tell me a little bit about why Chopin and what your thesis was on? Sure. So I um, learned to love Chopin from a very young age. It's uh, a composer that's always been very dear to me. And uh, one of the things that uh, bothered me, as it were, for a very long time is that in musical circles, we tend to pigeonhole Chopin a little bit as the sort of long-suffering artist-composer. And in many senses, he was. You know, we're talking about a man who was very ill throughout most of his life, quite feeble. Um, and at, at the time, they thought it was uh, tuberculosis, but it turns out it was a, a congenital heart condition. 
the point is that he um he wasn't a particularly extroverted and um and flamboyant man in that respect and so it tends to be that throughout history people look at his music through the prism of this long suffering artist um and to me it always felt like perhaps yes the long suffering artist but there is also a man behind this and this man can be happy and he can be angry and he can be any of a host of emotions that somehow we don't allow him to be because it doesn't fit very nicely into our preordained idea of Chopin as a long-suffering artist. And so I set out to look at other ways to uh, to look at the score and to think, well, how can I make a more holistic interpretation that allows for the the notion that this is a complete human being with all of the emotions that a human being has. And so I started looking at all the worded indications that he gives us in the school. And they can range from things like the simple uh, terms of forte or piano, loud or soft. Uh, they could be things like indications of tempo and speed, like if you're playing in a lively way or if you're playing in a, a sad way. And to look at how he uses those terms and in which places in the school he uses those terms. What have they got in common? And to sort of work out uh, what they have in common and how we can then uh, find out more about what the, the ontology of the term is, what the, what the term actually means to him. And by that, help ourselves uh, interpret the music in a, in a more holistic way, I guess is probably the... The so, so following on from your thesis, did it impact, are you basically saying it impacted the way you interpret and play his music and probably teach his music? Yes, absolutely. Um, in, in many places, and you know, there is often pushback on this because there is to some extent still a, an institutionalized way of, of how Chopin ought to be played. And I am, sometimes at odds with that in that I, I don't always agree, uh, particularly in places, uh, not a piece I'm playing in, on this particular tour in South Africa, but for example, the, the second ballad, which is in many ways an incredibly angry and enraged work. And it was taught to me at a young age as, you know, oh, this is passionate, but still restrained or, and, and I disagree in that I think we have to allow this person to be a full person. And therefore, we have to admit the possibility that he could be enraged um, and and yelling, even if, you know, people talk in accounts of Chopin as being very soft-spoken. But I'm convinced that every person has has their moments. They have to. And with genius such like uh, such as he's, I imagine that it, it is open to much interpretation. You speak about the institutionalized way of being taught classical music, Doctor. You have you speak about um, music being taught in an institutionalized way, which kind of makes me think: Is classical music elitist, old-fashioned, and still relevant to today's society? I think classical music is definitely relevant, and. I think it gets a reputation for being elitist um, 
In the UK, it's very relevant at the moment, actually, um, because we're talking about funding of classical music. And I get quite frustrated when people say it's elitist and they point to um, the prices of tickets, for example. And the truth is that in the UK, you can go to the Royal Opera House. Um, I think it's now £20 uh, for not the best seat in the house, but every show has a certain amount. I think it's 100 tickets at £20 or so. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a ticket to a football match for under 60 or 70 pounds. And nobody says football is elitist. Uh, so I, I don't take the point at all about the price of enjoying classical music. Um, and I don't think it's elitist. I think perhaps some elements of it might require some sort of uh, an education, which I think ought to be there at a young age for children in terms of appreciating music in general, not only classical music. Um, and perhaps sport is more immediately accessible without any preparation. But the leap between that and something being elitist, as if some, somehow I'm sitting in some ivory tower and looking down at the people, that's definitely what, not what, what this is. And, and the fact that it has um, kind of endured for so long and people still enjoy listening to it, playing, learning it, is indicative of the fact that it talks to us at some level. I think it definitely does. It, 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 I'm sure and I'm convinced it does. I think to some extent perhaps it's less fashionable to admit, but I can't imagine that uh, that it doesn't speak to people on a very visceral level. And that's not to say that classical music is somehow better than other genres. I think the the notion is that we have to accept that there's a space for everything and that within every genre we have, uh, you know, we have art music and we have popular music and that they're slightly different in in their in what they set out to do. And of course, you know, in Chopin's time, in Beethoven's time, in Mozart's time, there was also popular music, most of which hasn't endured. And sometimes I like to think of it as the test of time. You know, we, we still listen to Mozart. Will we be listening to whatever ditty is on the radio this morning in 200 years' time? And I can't say, and perhaps we will. And at that point, we can say it's classic. Um, but I certainly think that there's a difference between somebody setting out <laughs> to uh, compose a piece of music that will endure for the ages and somebody setting out to write a song for radio play that will make them a lot of money. I like the comparison. Um, that you have the fact that you are coming to South Africa, it's not obviously your first trip, and that you will be playing around the country, including Bloemfontein, Hermanus, Neisner, Port Elizabeth, Grahamstown, Durban, and best of all, of course, Johannesburg, um, is indicative that you have an audience, you have a strong audience, and I know people are looking forward to seeing you. I think the best chance, I think you're performing twice in Johannesburg. Once is at the Johannesburg Linda Auditorium, and that is on the 21st. And the other time also at the theatre on the square. Do you want to just tell us about those two performances? So uh, the Linda uh, is actually my first solo recital uh, on this tour. So the night before I'm playing in Bloemfontein with uh, Israeli conductor Daniel Boyko and the Free State Symphony Orchestra. 
uh, and then the following day, I'm in Johannesburg with um, my recital program, which is Beethoven, Schumann, and a lot of Chopin. Um, and that's uh, a program that's very special to me, uh, particularly because of the second half. The Chopin selection is of works from the second half of his life, uh, when he's very much in his maturity as a composer and really being quite experimental in terms of uh the notion of form. So I'm bringing a program that has on it waltzes and mazurkas and a polonaise. And these are all things that to some extent have rules in, in how they're composed. And Chopin really tries to push against those boundaries and in a slightly revolutionary way, I guess, is, is one facet of Chopin that we don't talk about a lot because again, this slightly feeble sick man is not going to be the one uh, carrying the burden of of pushing the boundaries um, and so that's to me a very a very special selection of pieces uh, and then the following week I'm giving a lecture recital at the theater on the square and talking about uh, Beethoven Tempest Sonata and why is it that Beethoven's piano sonatas are actually important uh, what about the Tempest Sonata is so special? And to begin with, what even is a piano sonata? It sounds absolutely awesome. Nobody would want to miss that. If anybody would like to get tickets, what should they do? Uh, so tickets are available online. Uh, uh, at the, uh, the Linda performance is through the Johannesburg Musical Society website, which I believe is jms.org.za. And tickets for the lecture recital are available through the theater. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me. I wish you a successful trip and tour and all the best. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Amitya Hav, award-winning pianist who will be in South Africa over the next two weeks.